Hello and welcome to another episode of Travelosophy. I'm your host, Jade Jackson, and if you're new to the podcast, my whole life has been filled with travel. I've explored over 55 countries, been a travel agent, a tour guide, and worked on a cruise ship. Basically, I did whatever I could in order to travel. Now I'm a freelance writer, podcaster, and photographer. In today's episode, I'll be talking about travel photography and how to get the best shots whilst you're traveling. Don't worry, it's not going to be too technical. It's mainly things to be aware of and to think about when you're out and about taking photos. Everything I'll be talking about is what has helped me become a better photographer. The things I've noticed about photographers, and again, this has been my experience, especially on Facebook groups, is the community is not overly supportive. I've often found trolls trying to outdo each other by putting down gear, images or their creative process. However, at the end of the day, the best photographers work with whatever they are given. If you can't get the shot with a cheap crappy camera in rainy conditions and somehow make it all work, only then can you call yourself a photographer. Sure, it helps to have nice gear because it opens up the range of photos that can be taken and improves the size and quality of the image for printing purposes. But of course, not every photo is printed. Being a photographer is about thinking like a photographer, which is what I'm going to teach you today. So don't be put off because someone says your camera isn't as good as theirs or because your lens isn't the most expensive one. Always buy gear based on your needs with an idea that you'll probably outgrow it in a year or two. I'm a fan of Nikon because they're tough and they last. I still have one of my first Nikons I bought in Japan in 2004. Still turns on, still takes photos, despite me leaving it to gather dust. Between myself and my family, we've probably gone through about 10 Canon products, all of which died for no reasons. Not saying one is better than the other, just based it on my personal experience. The other thing I've noticed is learning on a lower-end Nikon or digital SLR, all the menu settings and designs easily transfers up to the top-end cameras. So it's not like learning a whole new camera if you decide to upgrade later on. But more than anything, being a photographer is about capturing a moment that is pleasing to the eye, like an art. You just want to keep looking at it. Reddit seems to have the most useful and respectable photography groups I've encountered. And there's groups where you can post a photo and ask for feedback, which can be helpful if you're not sure how to improve a shot. But of course, take any negative feedback with a grain of salt. If it's truly useful, they'll want to tell you how to improve rather than just putting you down. So anyway, enough ranting, on with the show. From my first big trip, to even just a short weekend away, the photographs I bring back are often some of the greatest souvenirs I could imagine, because they spark memories, which include smells, sounds and feelings. A photograph isn't just proof that you went somewhere, it's about sharing your experiences, even if it's just to help jog your memory in years to come. A photograph is a powerful tool. One of my relatives has Alzheimer's, and her short-term memory is very poor, but her long-term memory is still there. 
I recently showed her photos from a country road trip I took down to Victoria, which included Nil, a small town where she lived for many years as a child. And as soon as she recognised the photos, endless stories erupted about her childhood. But if you asked her what we just ate for lunch, she'd struggle to remember. It was reassuring seeing those memories come back, and you could tell it was a reminder of happier times for her. Photography has always featured heavily in my life, and ironically, very few of those photos am I actually in, because I'm always behind the camera, of course. But the photos still tell a story, and there's a story behind every photo, which I've written a blog post about. As always, you'll find all links in the show notes. I studied photography in high school, but I learnt to be a photographer through travel. The camera auto settings didn't always capture what I was seeing, so I had to learn to capture whatever I saw in whatever conditions I was in. As much of my travel was solo and on my own schedule, I often had the luxury of being able to return to a location in different lighting conditions like sunrise or sunset in order to capture different types of images. I know I've spoken negatively about Instagram in other episodes, because it's pretty much all fake. Like who backpacks around Asia with beautiful ball gowns and just happens to have perfect makeup and hair as you're dangling off a train in Sri Lanka? It's unrealistic. Also, it builds up the kind of traveller who is just in it for the photo. And in many cases, these destinations become ruined by grammars, as in Instagrammers, all vying for the perfect position, trying to get the best shot, because it's all about the likes, rather than actually being there, enjoying it, and capturing the feeling of being there. There's been multiple stories of places completely destroyed by Instagrammers trying to get their shot. In Tasmania, a rare moss that took hundreds of years to propagate was irreversibly destroyed by Instagrammers stomping over it, trying to get a photo. Likewise, beaches in Thailand and the Philippines had to be closed to tourists because of overpopulation and pollution caused by so many visitors, just trying to get the perfect beach shot, let alone all the people who have died trying to take the perfect selfie. Don't be that photographer. I recently read an article by someone on Instagram who does have a lot of followers, but who faked an entire weekend at Coachella. She never went. Everything was just photographed in her backyard and at a park and carefully photoshopped. Her point supposedly being to prove how much fakeness is on Instagram. Even though at the same time she was also getting hundreds of thousands of likes. I don't want to sound like a grumpy old photographer. Because I know every time something new happens with photography, it's usually put down by old timers. And yes, it's fantastic that everyone is so interested in photography now. But the other side of Instagram and the revival of photography also means it's harder to take the kind of shot that would stand out in a gallery or on a wall at home. Call me old school, but travel photography to me has been a way for the people back home to experience what I have, to see and imagine what it's like to be there, because not everyone has the ability or freedom to travel. Mostly, it's about a perfect souvenir for myself. How is that different from Instagram? Because it's not about the likes. The photo itself should bring you all the joy you need. Like a perfectly crafted poem capturing the money shot, that one photo that perfectly sums up a destination. 
that feeling can't be recreated through likes. If a single photo makes you feel like you've created a masterpiece, that image will continue to bring you joy for years, way more than a couple of likes ever could. The number one question you should ask yourself before and after every photo is, would this look amazing, printed and framed on a wall at home? Or better yet, in a gallery exhibition? Could you continue to look at that single photo every day for months or years on end? If the answer is no, then it's not a great travel photo. That doesn't mean it's not worth taking. It just means you should think about what you can do to improve the photo. Is the lighting too harsh? Are there too many people in the way? Is it too busy and noisy? Is it too quiet? Maybe the photo needs a person or two to bring life to it. All of these things can be altered by either waiting, going away and coming back, or taking the same image in different lighting conditions. Perhaps then it might be a photo worthy of appearing in a gallery exhibition or adorning the pages of National Geographic. I'm not saying to force it and fake it, because fake photos are obviously fake, because they're too polished. If you start getting into the mindset of forcing locals to pose just for a photo, you're setting a dangerous precedent, and they'll start expecting payments for photos, which can get expensive, and it's not authentic. I remember watching a National Geographic documentary about their photographers, and in some cases, they literally spend months every day from dawn to dusk out taking photos, waiting for everything to be just right, to get the shot that makes it into the magazine. I remember going to a talk at the Opera House by Nat Geo photographer Thomas Peschak, and he talked about how Nat Geo doesn't Photoshop, and nor should you if you want to be a serious travel photographer. I remember reading an article about snow leopards, and every day they set up cameras on the trail near the den of a snow leopard, and every day they got nothing. On the very last day, after six months, they managed one photo of a snow leopard, which of course ended up in the article in National Geographic. Not everyone has the luxury of spending six months in a destination. But on a lesser scale, if you have the time to revisit a location the next morning or maybe a day later, you're more likely to get the kind of shot you could print and put on your wall because the lighting will be different. One of the first things that I felt improved my travel photos was, ironically, taking me out of them. Sure, I still take the occasional selfie or whatever, but doing so allowed me to focus on what was in the frame and take more control. Of course, knowing how to use your camera is obviously imperative. Phone cameras I'll talk about separately. Phones are great for quick snaps, like if you want to send something funny to a friend, but printing photos from your phone to put on a wall, you'd max out at about an A3 size. I mean, there's multiple things that affect print quality. It's not just about megapixels. But with a proper DSLR camera, you can go full wall size, like 2 meters by 2 meters print size if you wanted. And probably you could print a billboard size if you really wanted to. If you have a digital SLR camera, read the manual twice. Go through all the camera menus and practice taking shots with each scene setting, particularly the more creative settings. For example, my camera has the option to create an animated photo that looks like a sketch, as well as the option to take a photo that looks like it's 
in miniature. Having gone through the instructions, highlight the main things you'll need to know, which is how to switch your camera to manual, how to switch off the flash, how to manually focus, and ultimately how to do all of this without looking at the buttons. When you change settings, there are little icons you'll see through the viewfinder. So practice looking through the viewfinder and changing settings like auto to manual so you can do it without looking at the dial. Photography is best learnt by doing. I know everyone learns in different ways, but creating muscle memory like driving a manual car so everything becomes second nature is key. However, operating a camera is only one aspect. You also need to be able to notice a scene worth shooting. However, on the technical side, if you're too lazy to read the manual, there's three main settings for taking a photo. Shutter speed, ISO and aperture. ISO adds more light into your photo without adjusting shutter speed or aperture. Think of it as your flash without a flash. However, the higher the ISO number, the grainier and less sharp your image will be. It's just something to be aware of. So a high ISO setting would be used in night photography, for example. Shutter speed determines how long the light enters your camera. For example, could be one hundredth of a second, which would be daytime shooting, or 30 seconds or more for shooting stars. There's of course dozens more options to fine tune these settings as well. Lastly, aperture determines how much light enters your camera whilst the shutter is open. Think of it like an eyelid. Is it half open, three quarters open, or fully open? Aperture is also referred to as depth of field. Basically, that means how blurry your image is. An aperture number like 1.4 means a shallow depth of field, so the background is blurry, which is best for portraits. An aperture number like 22 means the entire photo, foreground and background, will be in focus. There'll be more detail in colours and textures, so that, that option is best for landscapes. Basically, photography is about finding that perfect sweet spot where everything is just right. However, there is also the ability to opt for a setting because you want an effect in the photo you're producing. Like maybe you want blurred water to give a sensation of movement, so then you'd opt for a slower shutter speed. But before we get too technical about numbers, let's just go back to the basics. Once you think you've mastered changing the settings, for example from auto to manual, whilst looking through the viewfinder instead of the screen on the back of your camera, do it all again in the dark. Then do it again with your eyes closed, without looking. Count how many clicks between auto and manual if your dial clicks. The point of all this is simply changing settings without looking at the screen or without looking at the dials and using information in the viewfinder allows you to focus on what you're taking a photo of and also make sure you're faster and less likely to miss an opportunity because you can't find the right setting. There's no greater feeling than being in a really dark setting and being able to adjust your camera to just the right setting without having to look at your actual buttons or dials. Overall, it makes you more intuitive. The average digital SLR camera makes something ridiculous like 12,000 calculations per second to choose which settings to apply in auto function. 
Supposedly, the new iPhones make something even more ridiculous, like 20 trillion calculations. Like anyone would have a way to double-check that. But still, there are times when it will get it wrong, because it's a machine and it's not seeing what you're seeing. But you can also use the camera's auto information to learn from. Take a photo on auto, pay attention to what settings the camera chooses. Then switch to manual and adjust the aperture and shutter speed slightly from the camera auto settings to see how it changes your photo. This way you'll be within the range of taking a good pic without it being too overexposed or underexposed. Some photographers take multiple photos of the same thing with slightly different settings of shutter speed and aperture to have options when they get back home on what they might prefer to use. Often it's not till you look at a photo on a big screen that you can fully appreciate how good it is. I've had multiple times where the photo on the small screen looks great, but when you see it on a big screen in high detail, there might be parts not quite right. Of course, you can adjust settings on a computer after the photo has been taken, but it's quicker and easier to get it right in camera the first time, so therefore you don't have to spend hours and hours editing back home. The best photos come with time, so allowing yourself time to get the settings right, time to revisit something if need be, in different lighting conditions, whether it be sunrise, sunset, or on a cloudy day, are all going to give you completely different photos. Whilst there is planning involved to capture what you want, there's a certain amount of being aware that also comes into play, seeing a moment right before it happens. The perfect example of that was when I was in the Philippines. I took a photo of kids playing in the water at sunset. I had the photo of the sunset reflected in the water already, and I saw the kids running down the beach. There was about eight or nine of them, and I had a split second before I realised they were running into the water. As they did... I waited an extra two or three seconds until they spread out so that therefore they filled the frame. But before they had a chance to cause too many ripples in the water. So the end result was the reflection of the sky, including a long cloud, some pink and orange colours of the sunset, but the silhouette of the kids gave life and texture to the image. It ended up a perfect mirror image, and as soon as I pushed the button, I was like, yep, that's it. I was actually standing in the water myself, holding my camera just above the waterline. I was nervous about tripping in the sand and dropping my camera, or the strap dangling and causing a ripple. I was lucky I had time to adjust everything, to capture the sunset first, before the kids arrived. So there wasn't much to figure out. Just take the shot. I could have adjusted to capture their faces, but the shapes of the way they were standing and the colours meant a silhouette blended the photo together. I wasn't close enough to fill the frame and still get details of their faces. So, on this occasion, a landscape shot, I felt the silhouette worked better. Of course, sometimes you don't have time to change the settings. And a good habit to get into is, before you switch your camera off, switch it back to auto just in case the next time you use it, you might be so caught up in the moment or rushing to take an action shot, you automatically just turn it on and click the button. And if you've left it in manual with settings for low light, then it's going to be overexposed or whatever the case is. It's about building habits. Of course, if you teach yourself to get into the habit of checking the settings before each photo, then that is going to work also. 
When I travel, I always have my camera, which is a Nikon D750, because it's still quite quality, but it's about a kilo lighter than the D810. Two spare batteries in case for whatever reason I can't charge overnight. Usually about a thousand shots to two thousand shots is one battery. Of course I have multiple memory cards. I have two 128 gigabyte SD cards, which are my main ones, plus a few 64 gigabytes and then a few 32 gigabytes as backup. Far more than I'll ever use, but just in case one gets damaged, I still have others to use. I have three lenses, a 50mm 1.4 aperture, which is great in low light, a 28 to 80mm everyday lens, which I can use in most situations, and a 300mm zoom lens. Generally, I don't need to carry all three lenses every day, so it's nice to have the option of switching lenses and lightening my load if I don't need everything. I also have an external flash, but I rarely use that for travel photography. Of course, I also have a GoPro and a Nikon 360. So what makes a great travel photo? One that captures a moment, that tells the viewer exactly where you are, without being obvious like a sign or a flag. A photo that evokes some kind of emotion, that makes the viewer want to be there, that makes them curious and makes them want to look at the image over and over. Like a piece of art, an image that intrigues, that has multiple elements encouraging you to think about it, and the subject and one that would easily fit on the cover or within the pages of National Geographic. So how do you ensure you capture the magic? Being a photographer is almost a different mindset. You have to be actively looking for photo opportunities. They won't always jump out at you. Sure, you can replicate other photographers you've seen, but eventually you want your own unique photos. So go down the alley. Don't walk down the main tourist street. Get off at a random train stop. Find a good place to plant yourself with a nice background and see who walks in front. Sometimes it's a matter of waiting. I have a photo I took in India. I found a brown wall just in a random side street and it's in the afternoon sun. It had blue wooden shutters and an interesting wooden door. I stood waiting for a rickshaw to ride past for about 25 minutes. Eventually one did and it had a blue roof to boot which worked well with the shutters and it stood out against the brown wall. I took that shot as portrait mode because I wanted the rickshaw to fill the lower part of the frame and I wanted to catch some of the blue shutters but they were up high. The rickshaw went outside the frame but that's okay, you can still see it, it's a rickshaw. Not every great travel photo can be planned. Sometimes it's just about being there, camera ready, eyes open, looking at everything around you. And sometimes photos don't happen until you have the camera ready. I was in Laos, I think, and there were some kids playing, and I went to take a photo. Then suddenly they all crammed up against the gate they were behind. And so the red gate had all these squished kids' faces behind it. And the red gate was a beautiful frame. And they weren't posed like that until I was about to take a photo. So sometimes your camera will set the photo up for you. If you're photographing an iconic building or monument, you can plan what time to be there to capture the colours that appear after sunset. Usually up to an hour after sunset is when the best colours appear in the sky. So always be aware of sunrise and sunset, and also directions, north, south, east, west, wherever you are. 
Taking portraits and including people is often the difference between a nice photo and a great photo. Of course, make sure you always ask. I've only had one instance of someone not wanting me to take their photo, and if that's the case, always respect that. Most people, if you ask politely and with a smile, will happily have their photo taken. In India, kids had been prepped by previous tourists to expect money. Same case in Bali. Not that I'm against it, but it's setting an expectation that could lead down a dangerous path. And they just as equally loved receiving pens and pencils that I also had in my bag, which is more likely to be used for their education. If you get asked to send them a copy of a photo, of course, make sure you do. Even just hotel pens. I always collect them wherever I go. When you look through your viewfinder, don't just look at what you're taking a photo of, but look at everything in the frame. It sounds basic, but so many people don't do that. Look at every corner, and especially in the background. Is there a person or object like a rubbish bin that could easily be eliminated by simply changing your angle or stance? When it comes to zoom, I'm a big fan of it. I love getting in close and filling the frame with details that are missed from afar. However, you don't have to rely on a zoom. You just have to move closer. Roughly, don't quote me on this, 10mm of zoom is about a step forward in actual distance. So basically, if you step forward, it's like zooming in, step backwards, and you zoom out. Sometimes just two steps can make the difference between an average photo and an amazing photo. Likewise, it's common to take the photo from eye level standing up. But as you're looking through the viewfinder, what does the same image look like if you kneel down, or if you stand on your toes, or if you put your arm in the air and take the photo with the camera looking down? My camera, the Nikon D750, in fact I think all my cameras have had this feature, the LED screen on the back is movable, so you can flip it out and face it up if you want the camera low to the ground, or you can flip it around and face the screen down if you're taking a photo up high which is really handy for getting different angles and still being able to see what kind of photo you are taking. If you have the option of getting this on a camera, I'd definitely recommend it. Too many photographers I find rely on post-editing to get their shot right, but I can always spot a heavily fake photo that's been overly touched up. The colours just don't appear natural, and it's too neat. I'll talk about editing at the end because it's the last thing you'll need to do. Often it's nice to take several quick frames with different zoom levels, so you have a few to choose from without losing any image quality. Unless you're taking high action shots of wildlife, I avoid having my camera set to multiple frames per second because it creates so much extra work in post-production and will quickly fill up your memory cards, especially if you're using RAW. But of course, you know, in a high action setting, like maybe street dance or something like that then it can make the difference between capturing a shot with eyes open or make capturing a shot with eyes closed so there are times when you will use it. Most cameras and even iPhones now have the option to photograph in RAW. What this means is the image is not compressed. During compression some details can be lost and when you open and edit a JPEG image many times it can lose quality. There's also more editing options open to you using RAW, but the downside is it takes up more room on your memory card. So always buy the biggest memory card that you can afford. 128 gigs is 
pretty sufficient. But if you're taking lots of photos on a three-month trip, you'll need a couple. If you're, of course, if you're taking stunning shots, use RAW. If you're taking happy snaps, JPEGs are fine. However, just be aware you'll need to convert photos from RAW to JPEG before you print, before using them online in many cases. So it just adds extra time to the editing process. I've printed purely from a JPEG image though, and that was fine. Most digital SLR cameras can shoot RAW and keep a JPEG copy as well, so you get the best of both worlds, especially if your camera has two memory card slots. Something else to consider is where in your photo should the subject be? In the middle? To the left? On the far right? It depends on what is in the rest of the picture. Regardless though, you should have a reason. There's a framed print at my grandmother's house that I took. I know I've mentioned it in another episode, but it's a great example. There's three cabbage trees at sunset in Cape Palliser in New Zealand. Of course, I'll include a link to any of the photos I talk about so you can see what I'm actually referring to. So this photo on the right-hand side, there's a possum in the tree looking left. It's kind of looking down and out. The tree in the middle is further away, and the tree on the left is much bushier than the others. I took several photos, but the one with the possum on the right makes aesthetic sense because it's looking left, so the viewer wants to see what the possum is looking at. And it's up to the viewer to decide, is it looking at a rock? Is it looking at the other tree? Because it's a silhouette, it's ambiguous. If I had the possum on the left of the photo, it wouldn't have worked as well because looking at the photo, you'd be like, well, the possum's looking at something, but I can't see because it's off the photo. Sometimes you might feel like putting someone right smack in the center. But if there's other stuff in the photo, it can make more sense aesthetically to put them off to the side. Experiment. It's your photo. You might find you hate left-heavy photos because you're right-handed, and that's okay too. It's your photo. It's about what you find pleasing. It's not for anyone else. I was actually having a discussion about left-facing objects versus right-facing objects. Apparently, we do have a preference based on whether we are left or right-handed. So it could be why someone says one of your photos is fantastic while someone else isn't so attached to it because they're right or left-handed. However, there are also scientific formulas where we are naturally drawn to certain points of a photo. And if someone's eye is in the, that point, we automatically find that picture pleasing to look at. These areas usually are the points where your viewfinder grid intersects. If you put an eye on one of those intersecting points, then your photo is going to have more oomph. Sometimes a portrait, though, just needs to fill the frame, taking up as much as possible. I have two photos of my guides in Sapa in the mountains of Vietnam. One photo, there's a guide looking left, and the other, the guide is looking right. Two separate photos. It includes enough background to give a sense of place. It includes enough detail of their jacket, earrings and hair tie to give a sense of which tribe and people they belong to. The expression on their face is neutral, but it could also be exhaustion, deep in thought. They're not looking at the camera, they're looking out into the valley. But you can still see an eye, but that doesn't matter because it makes us think, what are they thinking? At first glance, 
their faces fill the frame. But it's only when you look closer that you realise that actually there's a lot more that's subtly appearing in the frame to give you an idea of what's going on and where it was taken. Landscape, you probably know this, but anyway. Landscape is photos taken with the wider side at the top and bottom, and portrait is photos with the wider side on the left and right. So going back to the original question, always ask yourself, would this photo look amazing printed and framed on a wall? You should also think about your wall space. How much space do you have to fill? Would two landscape photos side by side fill it, or would you need three portrait size images? There's nothing worse than coming home with some incredible photos and then realising that the display format doesn't fit the print format you're wanting to fill your wall with. So if in doubt, take a portrait and a landscape of any photo just as a backup. Tall buildings and architecture work well as portrait orientation, whilst a single tree or other wide spaces work well as landscape. That being said, I took a photo on Lombok in Indonesia from the top of a cliff. The water was beautifully clear, aqua blue, and there was a catamaran. I took that shot as portrait orientated because I wanted to include the water and the land. But you don't expect to see the boat. So as your eyes follow the water from light to dark, it's surprised with a boat. Another similar photo in the Blue Mountains starts with the foreground, a sandstone cliff at sunset, and there's grass on the cliff edge. Then right behind that is green trees in the valley. And as you follow the line of the photo going up, the trees become bluer, ultimately becoming the blue mountains that the mountains is famous for. So portrait can work in landscape scenes as well, if there's something at the bottom, in the middle and at the top. Colour always makes a photo stand out. And if you can capture complementary colours, which are almost like opposites, like blue and orange, red and green, these will make your subjects really pop. A classic example of colour is at dusk. The skies are light blue, the streetlights come on are slightly orange tinted, and there's enough light to see details of buildings, especially if they're also lit up from within. This makes for a pleasing image, and if you add an interesting person, you've got a winner. Sometimes just hints of colour are enough to attract the eye. It might be a red neon sign which highlights red lips or red shoes, whilst everything else is monotone. One of my favourite photos involving colour is the bottom of orange monk's robes along a grey cement footpath. Bright and dark, but it also gives a sense of lots of monks, which was the idea I was trying to portray. I have a board with some of my favourite photos printed and laminated. Some of them were very simple, just a quick snap and done, but still effective. Whilst others took some careful planning, visiting a scene multiple times, and yet they all have their own special qualities. There's a photo I took in Wales of a house beside a stormy sea. It was taken whilst I was on a bus, so the grass and trees are a little blurred, the clouds are thick and grey, but because of the blurred movement, it looks even more rough and angry. It's given it extra emotion. The house was originally pink and blue, I think, but I converted it to black and white because it gives more detail, and the contrast of the house stands out more against the blur of the grass and the sea. It gives you a sense the house could be haunted or feature a recluse living there.
Another photo I took of a tram in Hong Kong was in the middle of a downpour, which reminds me I have a raincoat thing for my camera. Totally worth it. It was like 30 bucks, has a clear panel on the back so you can see the screen and look through the viewfinder. Plus you can access the buttons via openings on the side. And I've been in full torrential downpour. My camera was fine. I still got the shot. But, so in Hong Kong, because of the rain, the lights of the tram and the neon lights surrounding it are reflected off the wet ground and they form a line leading your eye to the tram. Another photograph of a bakery in New York. It's kind of old school design with shop windows and it's taken at night, but the bakery is lit up from within. There's enough light from the streetlights that you can make out the design of the building. There's a person about to walk in wearing a coat and a hat and there is snow banked up on the sidewalk. So the photo is lit up from the shop's lights within the shop, reflections from the snow, and street lights. So whilst I didn't use a flash, there's still enough light that you can make out everything in the scene. What I like about this photo is at first glance, it looks like it's from the 50s or 60s based on the colours and the fonts. There's a blurred section in the middle, which I think is a child moving, but it could also be shopping bags. It's not really clear. But everything else is still and in focus. It's a contrast of warmth and cold, light and dark, movement and still, black and white and colour. It's all these elements together that capture a moment. I took one photo of the shop, then noticed someone was about to walk in, so waited till they were lined up squarely in the middle of the door and took the second shot. So it's aesthetically pleasing too. And it's not just what's in a photo. That photo reminds me of being in New York with my friend Jen, who died recently. So even though she's not in that photo, I still remember being in that moment, seeing that scene with her standing next to me as I was taking the photo, which is the untold secret power of photographs. Memories behind the scene. Photographing wildlife is different but the same. You need to allow plenty of time, you need to be ready, but also preempt movements and actions and capture a variety of zoom settings in order to capture the shot you want. It's nice to zoom in and see details like their fur or eyes, but also don't forget to include the location. Even in a zoo setting, it's possible to capture animals so they look like they're in their natural habitat, providing the zoo has sufficient greenery. When I was in China, taking photos of the pandas in Chengdu, it was much harder to get there than I anticipated because there was no taxis. So I ended up taking the bus, which took forever. So by the time I arrived, it was mid-morning, like 10. And by then, most of the pandas had been up for hours and were asleep again until the afternoon. I did manage some decent photos of the adults, but I didn't have that one shot that was like, yep, this is it. So the next morning, I got up earlier. I managed to catch a taxi straight away and was there before it opened. There's a shuttle inside the Panda Research Base that will take you around because it's quite a long walk up to the top. And so I took the shuttle straight to the top where the baby pandas were. And I had probably about 45 minutes to shoot them playing, climbing trees, tumbling, wrestling, falling out of trees. I took close-ups and wide angles. And overall, there's three shots that I was most happy about. One of a panda, as it was falling, it's looking straight down the camera with its paw reaching out, as in, 
help me, which evokes strong emotions. There's another one of a panda flopped in a tree, with another in the background. It's half awake, but it has details of the fur and eyes to really show what the panda is thinking. Plus that one also shows the habitat as well. Lastly, I took a photo of a panda hanging over a branch with just its bum and feet in the air. Reminds me of an Ewok from Star Wars. And on its own, probably wouldn't stand the test of time. But combined with the others, helps to tell a story about their playfulness. This was a perfect example of having the time to go back, take photos again without the crowds in cooler rainy weather, which is preferred by pandas. And I got the shot. In Vietnam, lots of locals wear those conical hats. Sure, it's iconic, but I wanted it to stand out against a plain background. Everything at street level was too busy. It just so happened to be I found a cafe with a balcony. At first it was a nice place to chill, above the traffic, and have an iced coffee. Then I looked over the balcony and noticed street hawkers walking below, with bamboo poles over their shoulders carrying baskets of stuff. So I must have waited like 30 to 40 minutes. I knew the shot I wanted. Eventually, it arrived. Someone wearing a conical hat, carrying baskets of stuff, and I took the shot from above. There was a splash of colour in the baskets and on their hat, around the rim. The road was dark, so the hat stood out. And it's just one single photo that easily sums up Vietnam without anything like a sign or a flag or anything obvious. Of course, the hat is kind of obvious, but anyway. Night photography was always my weakest, but I learnt how to make the most of ISO and with my portrait lens, 50mm, 1.4 aperture, which worked particularly well in low light conditions, I was intent on pushing myself to get some great night shots. So when I was in China, I did just that. There's lots of photos that stand out. But one particular one is a guy in the dark and only his face is lit up by his cell phone. The phone provided enough ambient light to see his face, street lights provided enough to sense the building, but the point of the photo was him. In another nighttime photo, there was a bicycle against a door under a street light, a tree with a few pink flowers, and then a woman walked past with a pink dress. I waited till she was in a doorway so light was behind her, then took a quick snap. At first glance, it's dark and moody. On the second and third glance, there's a lot of elements to investigate and the pink hues are the only colour against an otherwise dark grey background. This one was a perfect example of the only light I had was the street light. So I had to up my ISO, lower my shutter speed, but still have enough aperture to so that it wasn't too blurry. So I guess know that some of the best photos do require patience. It helps to have an idea of what image you want to take. Sure, I could have arranged for a local to stand beneath the balcony in Vietnam and fill their baskets with bright fruit or flowers, but that would have been fake. It's the imperfections that make it real. And there was enough perfect elements in the photo to make it a great shot, but the fact that the baskets weren't filled didn't really matter. You have to be committed to the photo, which is why it's sometimes easier to travel solo. Not impossible, but to a non-photographer, I know it can get annoying. When shooting underwater, you need to get as close as possible without scaring the marine life. Because the more water you have between the subject and the camera lens, 
the higher the chance of, I hesitate to say pollution, it's not really pollution, more sediment showing up in your photo. Your photos without flash will naturally look blue. So if you're using a GoPro, you can get filters for them that cut out the blue, but I've had mixed results with these. Also, you have to be aware of your movement and breathing. So practice being able to remain as still as possible because the slightest movement from currents or waves can blur your pics. If you're learning to dive, focus on learning to dive rather than trying to get photos. Even after snorkeling and diving for years, it's still really hard to take good underwater shots. I've used a variety of underwater cameras. GoPro is easy because out of the box it can go down to like 40 metres. It's pretty high quality, but there's no zoom. So you have to get really close to fill the frame, which is not always possible. Also, there were times I thought I'd push the button to record, but it didn't. It only recorded me getting out of the water or whatever. In a perfect world, you'd have a water housing for your SLR camera with additional lights. But these are usually two or three times the cost of the camera. So it's often a case of utilising what you have to get the best you can. These days, drones make it easy to take shots from above which provide a unique perspective. But there's so many different laws in each country about what is permissible with drones. So you have to check each and every country, as there is no universal ruling. Plus, some can be quite bulky, so there comes a limit to how much gear you can easily carry. I'm also disappointed with the battery life for drones. At the moment, still not much more than like 10-15 minutes of fly time, and then that's it. You also have to consider weight. With my Nikon camera, three lenses, a flash, my iPad, plus a few other little accessories, that all weighs about 7 kgs, or 15 pounds. In many cases, this is the limit to carry on luggage, so make sure you check the weight, because the last thing you want is to be forced to put something like a lens in your check-in luggage, and have it damaged or stolen. Of course, airports, military, police are off limits, and in many museums, not allowed to take photographs. If in doubt, always check. Some countries have strict rulings about photographs, and you can even be arrested. As a general rule, public places you can take photos, even people, but if you're taking a close-up portrait, it's always best to ask. If you plan on selling any photos, which includes people, you will need a model release form, which basically says they allow you to use their image. Now, with using your phones for travel photography, the latest models have decent cameras for the size. The iPhone XR is a 12 megapixel camera, which is about half the megapixels of the average digital SLR. I know the iPhone camera does a lot more automatically in terms of facial recognition, depth perception, colour and shadows, and these days there is a lot more you can adjust settings-wise. If you don't have the latest iPhone, there's also camera apps like Pro Camera that allow you to have manual control over shutter speed and ISO. And best part is you can see on the screen how the photo will look as you adjust it so there is less guesswork. However, phones lack zooms. Digital zooms tend to pixelate the photo. The flash tends to be either too bright or too dark. And again, if a photo is to be printed, you wouldn't be able to print as a wall size with 12 megapixels. If you're only going to use it for Instagram or Facebook, 12 megapixel photo is perfect. You don't need huge sizes. But if you want the option to print bigger than the standard photo size, which is 4 inch by 6 inch, then you'll want a camera with a bigger sensor and without the limitations of being a phone. 
I know there are extra lenses you can stick on, but in my experience, these do little to enhance the photo and never work as pictured. So, hence why, in my opinion, a digital SLR is still the preferred option if you want really good travel photos. And ironically, a lot of the photos you see on Instagram are actually taken with digital SLR cameras, not with iPhones or camera phones. Lastly, editing. If you think editing is choosing what filter to use, eh, I hate to break it to you, it's not. Editing a photo refers to making minor adjustments to enhance the photo, like lighting, colour and cropping. So cutting the edges out or rotating. You can also adjust the lighting to remove shadows. You can increase the colour to make them really pop and you can convert it to black and white. The editing tools in Apple Photos, Google Photos or Snapseed are the basics you'll need in most circumstances. The desktop version of Apple Photos has a few more tools, like you can remove pimples, but I'm sure most people have their favourite editing app to make their selfies look better. Apple stores, like physical Apple stores, also have started running workshops on photography. These are free, they run for one to two hours, and there's specific ones on iPhone photography and editing using Apple Photos. Definitely worth checking out. I did a GarageBand one and it was great fun. The other side of editing that people often become lazy about is being realistic about what photos are worth sharing. Ask yourself, will this photo look amazing printed and framed on my wall? If not, it's probably not worth sharing. So before I show my holiday snaps on Facebook, I'll go through each photo, favourite the ones I love and ignore the rest. Then I'll look at editing. Will editing the lighting or colour enhance this photo even further? Lastly, I go through a last drastic edit of only showcasing the best of the best. I still keep all my photos on my hard drive, but my friends don't need to see 600 plus photos of pandas. They only want to see the top three. If you have an iPad, Affinity Photo is a desktop quality photo editing tool that works well with Apple Pencil. Unlike Photoshop, you pay once and then get free updates. There's no subscription. With this, you can easily remove objects, create artistic effects like make the image black and white except for one or two colours, or you can change someone's eye colour. And you can also modify sections of a photo from light to dark, or vice versa. The desktop version does pretty much everything Photoshop does. It does take quite a bit to learn all the terminology and the work processes, but if you want to do anything with a photo, then I recommend Affinity Photo. It's $30 for the tablet version, or I think $80 for the desktop version. Just check to make sure your camera is supported before you buy it. But it's nice to have the option to modify anything whilst on the go using my iPad. I remember trying to explain to a friend how when I travel, I have photography days and I have break days. Of course, it's often the break days where you see the most. But being a photographer, you need to think like a photographer. Something akin to, I guess, being an artist and seeing beauty wherever you go. So if you want to both improve your technical ability and also capture unique original photos, go out in the conditions that other photographers would be packing up their gear in. Go out in extreme conditions like poor lighting, wet weather, fog, haze or night and use what you can to capture what you see. Keep playing with the ISO, the shutter speed and aperture settings until you get the shot you'll learn the direct correlation between light and dark and how ISO and shutter speed can make the shot. 
regardless of what light you have to play with. Don't rely on flash at first. Remember, all light is light to a camera, whether that be a street light, the moon, a television through a window, or a cell phone screen or a neon billboard. Light can also be reflected off metal surface or wet surfaces like tar. I know I said to learn how to take photos without flash because it teaches you more about the correlation between light and how it can affect your photos. However, there are times when using a flash is unavoidable. If you're taking photos of people, especially in crowds, then a flash can come in handy. It can feel the shadows caused by eyebrow ridges, noses and hats. Lastly, manual focus is useful in rain and fog. The camera may struggle to find something to focus on, so you can manually override to find an object like a tree or a plant or a person to focus on. You'll need to know how to lock the focus when using manual focus. Usually this is just a single button that says autofocus lock or AF lock. If you're shooting in, say, an exhibition or places where you need zero distraction with the camera's built-in light meter, then you'll need to switch autofocus off and use manual focus instead. The other reason for manual focus is if you're taking extreme close-ups like macro photography, for example, a spider in a web or a flower on a tree, it's quicker and easier to get the shot you're after using manual focus. Go to photography exhibitions like the World Press Photo or the Wildlife Photography Awards for inspiration. But mostly, take your camera with you always and ask yourself, would this photo look incredible printed and framed on my wall? And lastly, if you can capture something in unfavourable weather and lighting conditions, you can capture anything, anywhere, anytime. Congratulations, you've just become a travel photographer. Thank you so much for listening to Travelosophy. I really hope you found this helpful. If you have travel photos you wish to share, then please tag me on Insta at Jadikins Jackson. Likewise, feel free to at me on Twitter at Jadikins Jackson. If you love the content I produce and want more exclusive stuff and wish to support the podcast, then head to my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Jade Jackson. Or you can head to my support the podcast page for other really easy ways to show your support for the podcast and all the other incredible content I provide. Be sure to check out my website, jadejackson.com.au, for past podcast episodes, my travel blog, and other useful tips, and as well as my other podcast, Jade Talks Stuff. Thank you so much for listening to Trail of Philosophy with Jay Jackson. Bye now.